Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that knows a riot is the language of the unheard. Today we have Laura, Zoe, and Jules. And today we are talking about the radical history of Martin Luther King Jr. and some other civil rights leaders because, of course, like all things they touch, the libs have ruined the lineage of someone amazing with their unyielding worship of capitalism. Much of what we know about King's life and legacy has been filtered through a revisionist lens meant to make white people more comfortable with their own complicity in systems of white supremacy and anti-blackness. Many white Americans have reframed King's movement work and theorizing as a way to water down the true aims of a man who became significantly radicalized, pushed by black activists and organizers around him before he was shot and killed on April 4th, 1968. The sanitized version of King's life and work, the colorblind I have a dream narrative, often fails to acknowledge how King's increasing profile as a radical anti-racist organizer drew antagonism from the FBI and its director at the time, J. Edgar Hoover. In fact, in October of 1963, U.S. Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy authorized secret wiretapping of King's phones and kept the the surveillance under wraps until a few weeks after the assassination. The FBI's continued use of surveillance, in tandem with its efforts to delegitimize King as a communist sympathizer, hardly fits with the passive stories one would expect of the peaceful, non-confrontational character often described today. Mm. Yeah, so um, I was talking to my dad. I'm going to talk a little more about this later, but I was talking to my dad about... um, He was, like, radicalized around the time of the Civil Rights Movement because he was in college, and... um, Anyway, we were, like, just talking about that, like, stuff from that time period. I, like, went upstairs and, like, I don't know what conversation was happening with my family, but I just was, like, started coming back down and I just hear my dad be, like, he didn't die for volunteerism. (laughs) And it was cute. Um, Anyway. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) Anyway, um, I just thought that in case anyone was wondering about um, Martin Luther King's astrology chart, you've, you've come to the right place. Um, and this will just be important context as, as we go along, you know, to like point back to. So um, he was a Capricorn sun, a Pisces moon and a Taurus rising the, like me. The pause <laughs> after the Capricorn sun <laughs> speaks volumes. <laughs> it was a very pregnant pause. It was a nine months pregnant pause. Yes. <laughs> Um, he was also an Aquarius of Mercury and had a Taurus stellium, which are signs that actually a lot of civil rights leaders and radicals in general have shared. And we talked about that a while back when we did the like roasted episode about, um, like revolutionaries. So just thought that was an interesting tidbit. And as we're always saying on this podcast, correlation is causation. Of course. Um, astrology is real. Yeah, obviously. So true. I love that we're taking the position that correlation is causation. Official <laughs> season of the bitch lore. Positivism <laughs> is patriarchy. Correlation <laughs> is causation. <laughs> um, 
So I, I wanted to start us out with a little bit of background just on how Martin Luther King's legacy got so corrupted, how MLK Day came to be a holiday. Um, and I don't know, I think this is like something that I was thinking about when we were planning this episode, just like we hear so much co-opting of his life and work by moderates, liberals, um, a group of people who hated him while he was alive, but also even by like conservatives and like right-wing forces. Um, I saw a meme the other day that was like made by some right-wing people that was like a picture of people storming the Capitol on January 6th last year with the quote that we read at the beginning of this episode that like riot is the language like literally so bad but it's like I mean I think to some extent it's one of those things where like anyone who becomes famous enough their work is going to be misinterpreted in some way but I was like why is it that like racists think they can like use MLK's name. Um, So I just wanted to talk a little bit about how that happened. Um, So after Dr. King's death, which we will talk about in a little bit more detail later in the episode, this movement emerged to create the national holiday commemorating him. Um, And this was during a period of time where the revival and creation of Black American holidays was kind of deeply linked to more radical work as well within the Black power movement. Um, Kwanzaa, for example, was first celebrated in 1966, partly as this attempt to kind of move Black American life away from domination by white culture and like the white Christian calendar um, and creating these other moments and other times where like things would be commemorated separately from that. Um, So initially the movement around Martin Luther King Day was similar. It was a memorial that was informally observed by many people after his death. um, And Black Congress members introduced proposals to create a national memorial day annually starting the year that he died and for many years after that. Um, So the idea was first introduced four days after King's death um, with his wife, Coretta Scott King's approval. Um, And at the start, some of the more powerful supporters of this idea were kind of using it as a conservative tool. One of the Black legislators who initially backed the idea saw it as a way to redirect people from rising up in the streets, which a lot of people were doing, um, to mourn and protest King's death, to basically redirect that to what he called, quote unquote, proper tribute in churches, schools, homes, basically in private in a way that would be non-disruptive to capital. Um, And initially this idea wasn't supported by most of the federal government, but throughout the 1970s, there continued to be struggles over civil rights, many of which focused more on workplace rights um, and kind of, I think in some ways like less radical causes, but there still was like a lot of work happening that was disruptive to capital. Um, And conservative politicians started to see the idea of a national holiday commemorating King as something they could sort of use to push for like national unity and this kind of idea of an idea of national unity that relied on violently suppressing anti-racist struggle, essentially. Um, So 
In that process, while this was sort of moving towards happening, King's anti-imperialist beliefs were brought up by detractors as a main reason why this wouldn't happen um, and why they wouldn't actually want to make a holiday, which kind of pushed supporters to downplay those elements of his legacy and argue for a version of the holiday that would emphasize King's nonviolence and his beliefs that would more easily fit into a moderate capitalist worldview. Uh, detractors also argued that more time needed to pass before King's birthday could be made a holiday because too much of the country still hated him. But as moderates started to slowly come on board with this like national unity vision of the holiday and King's legacy, his more radical viewpoints were just increasingly only being discussed in mainstream politics by the most far right elements of the Republican Party. And this led people to in a lot of cases, probably unintentionally, but I think in the case of liberal politicians, very intentionally to position the idea that King was a communist and an anti-imperialist as some sort of like right-wing conspiracy theory, as opposed to a core part of his legacy. So by 1983, this process was far enough along that Reagan himself, the devil, was the one to officially enact MLK Day as a The devil, enemy of the pod. Enemy. Yeah, firm enemy of the pod. Um, But, you know, he clearly saw the holiday as a way to diffuse tension around ongoing racial and economic injustice. And when he made it a holiday, he claimed that America was no longer racist and that, quote, As a democratic people, we can take pride in the knowledge that we Americans recognized a grave injustice and took action to correct it, unquote. He also blamed King's death on, quote, compromising with law and order and people who started choosing which laws they'd break, unquote. So very much he was positioning this as like people who were not following the rule of law in America were the problem or the reason that King died. And we fixed racism. We don't need to worry about it anymore. So great that King existed and did that, but we're done now. We don't have to think about this anymore. Oh my God. And yeah, which is like obviously ridiculous, but I think it really highlights like why a conservative Republican politician would want to create a holiday like this it almost lets you be like this is over we did it like now there's a holiday about it um and i think like 15 years earlier when king died this probably would have seemed like an utterly unhinged claim to make but you know the civil rights movement and radical politics generally had suffered a lot of losses with king's death and just generally like the national political landscape did not look the way it had in 1968 and it was time for King's radical legacy to be officially co-opted into a conservative value system that could use his name and his work as a further way to bolster a racist, imperialist, capitalist agenda. Um, So we're going to get a little bit more into the specific of King's legacy in just a sec and why this conservative vision of his work is so offensive and inaccurate. But I think it's important to think about how this very literal whitewashing of his legacy was able to happen, like who was pushing for that and how, and also who was opposing it and calling this out. Um, There has always been active resistance to this vision of King's legacy. Um, And I think it hasn't really been present in mainstream media coverage until the past decade or so with the prominence of the Black Lives Matter movement and struggles for racial justice just becoming more prominent and something that's actually acknowledged to any degree in mainstream American politics. But 
even at the time in 1983, people were like, this is clearly wrong and not accurate. Um, the Democratic Socialists of America put out a publication on King's legacy in which one historian wrote, quote, if racism, militarism, and economic injustice have changed little over the past two decades, one thing that has changed drastically is the image many Americans have of Martin Luther King Jr. himself. Unfortunately, King today oftentimes is portrayed as simply a prototypically successful American reform leader whose message and achievements comport perfectly with the most reassuring myths about American society and politics. If King is not pictured as the gentle minister who achieved desegregated seating on Montgomery's buses, then it is his I have a dream oration that is cited to represent him. The incessant implication is that America in the 1960s made King's dream come true. Rarely quoted, if ever, is a line that King used many times between 1966 and his death. The dream I had in Washington back in 1963 has too often turned into a nightmare, unquote. So, you know, I think that really expresses how radicals at the time felt about this and how obviously incorrect this co-opting of his legacy was. Um, also, five years later, historian Vincent Harding wrote a paper called Beyond Amnesia, Martin Luther King Jr. and the Future of America, in which he analyzed King's legacy and argued that his most fundamental commitments were not just to nonviolence, but also to structural change of the American imperialist legal system and organizing poor and working class people to fight against capitalism. He argued that King's legacy had been thoroughly co-opted by moderate forces seeking to erase his real values and that this was best captured by the poet Carl Wendell Hines who wrote 10 years after King's death, now that he is safely dead, let us praise him, build monuments to his glory, sing hosannas to his name. Dead men make such convenient heroes. They cannot rise to challenge the images we would fashion from their lives. And besides, it is easier to build monuments than to make a better world. So I don't know, I feel like that in this moment, especially just really speaks to me as like the celebration of MLK Day as something that liberals will acknowledge when like actual struggles for abolition and like all of the radical work that we've seen during the pandemic so often goes unacknowledged. Um, and that that has always been a part of King's legacy too. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I wanted to um, read a little bit from um, Bell Hook's essay uh, called Love as the Practice of Freedom, where she talks about MLK, because I think her perspective of his um, legacy is just like very beautiful. Um, so it says, quote, the ability to acknowledge blind spots can emerge only as we expand our concern about politics of domination and our capacity to care about the oppression and exploitation of others. A love ethic makes this expansion possible. The civil rights movement transformed society in the United States because it was fundamentally rooted in a love ethic. No leader has emphasized this ethic more than Martin Luther King Jr. He had the prophetic insight to recognize that a revolution built on any other foundation would fail. Again and again, King testified that he had decided to love because he believed deeply that if we are seeking the highest good, we find it through love, because this is the key that unlocks the door to the meaning of ultimate reality. And the point of being in touch with a transcendent reality is that we struggle for justice, all the while realizing that we're always more than our race, class, or sex. 
When I look back at the civil rights movement, which was in many ways limited because it was a reformist effort, I see that it had the power to move masses of people to act in the interest of racial justice and because it was profoundly rooted in a love ethic. Um, and then later in that same essay, she continues, the civil rights movement had the power to transform society because the individuals who struggle alone and in community for freedom and justice want these gifts to be for all, not just the suffering and the oppressed. Visionary Black leaders such as Septima Clark, Fannie Lou Hammer, Martin Luther King Jr., and Howard Thurman warned against isolationism. They encouraged Black people to look beyond our own circumstances and assume responsibility for the planet. This call for communion with a world beyond the self, the tribe, the race, the nation was a constant invitation for personal expansion and growth. When masses of Black folks started, started thinking solely in terms of us and them, internalizing the value system of white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy, blind spots developed. The capacity for empathy needed for the building of community was diminished. To heal our wounded body politic, we must reaffirm our commitment to a vision of what King referred to in the essay, facing the challenge of a new age as a genuine commitment to freedom and justice for all. My heart is uplifted when I read King's essay. I'm reminded where true liberation leads us. It leads us beyond resistance to transformation. King tells us that the end is reconciliation. The end is redemption. The end is the creation of the beloved community. The moment we choose to love, we begin to move against domination, against oppression. The moment we choose to love, we begin to move towards freedom, to act in ways that liberate ourselves and others. That action is the testimony of love as the practice of freedom. Mm, I love that. Wow, that's really beautiful. I Now just also feels like a good time to say that as I was researching this episode, I was just like tearing up so much, like mm. reading some of the things Bell Hooks wrote and also some of the things that MLK himself wrote totally. that just like feels so resonant at this time too it's just like i don't know Powerful great people. writers as yeah. well as great activists yeah absolutely yeah so just a plug we'll be doing a whole up on bell hooks next week so you can stay tuned for that Woo-hoo! but <laughs> but wanted to like tie her in here as well and i think with that we're going to get into more of the specifics of like mlk's uh work and radicalism hell yeah Okay, so we're going to start with the Montgomery bus boycotts. So King began to receive national attention for his involvement in helping strategize and execute the Montgomery bus boycott, which began on December 5th, 1955, and ended more than a year later on December 20th, 1956. It is estimated that the Montgomery city bus lines lost between 30,000 and 40,000 fares each day during the boycott. In retaliation for the success of the Montgomery boycotts, King's family home was bombed. It was also the Montgomery bus boycott that drew the initial surveillance of the FBI towards King's efforts to radically change the United States. So for 381 days, boycotters walked or carpooled to and from their destinations. The boycott and a legal challenge forced the Montgomery City Lines bus company to desegregate their fleet by November 1956, which sparked years of nonviolent organizing in the South. It was King's unconventional engagement tactics, organizing black communities through direct actions on buses, at lunch counters, libraries, and many other public facilities that quickly elevated his name among national movement circles and mainstream media alike. You know, direct action always getting the goods. And also, while there were a myriad of tactics being had at the time, like these were considered radical actions. 
Um, and of course, this effort didn't spring up from nothing. Um, black women and girls like 15-year-old Claudette Colvin and 42-year-old Rosa Parks first refused to obey segregation laws on Montgomery buses that relegated black riders to the back rows and mandated they give up their seats to white riders and had been gaining attention before the start of the boycott. And the pressure cooker-like conditions of many southern cities stoked the flames of a burgeoning civil rights movement, galvanized by the gruesome kidnapping and murder of 14-year-old Chicago-born Emmett Till while visiting family in Money, Mississippi in August of 1955. Till's murder had a profound effect on King as it represented the horrors of anti-black racism he was bracing himself to stand against. Yeah, just... You know, again, I think we talk a lot about the like or like we see the language of the of Rosa Parks sitting on the front of the bus. But like it's not really recognized as a whole movement that had like large desegregation effects in the South and also like put people at bodily risk of harm. Um yeah. Also, if you want to hear more about that on our lies, you were told in history class episode, um, our doctor of history, Kellen, who is not here today, um, talked a lot about Rosa Park and her legacy and how that was um, whitewashed and sanitized similarly to what we're talking about today. Yes, exactly. We also had a summer of 1968 episode that has a lot of some stuff that was going on at the time of MLK's death specifically. So recommend that one as a re-listen too. So um, there were a few different times that MLK was arrested. And one of the times uh, he wrote these letters from a Birmingham jail. And I think this is, again, one of the more common things that are read, though not in its entirety. And he wrote this in 1963. And I wanted to read this specific quote that really gets to the core of why libs and particularly white liberals are extremely dangerous. He writes, I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to, quote, order than peace, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who is constant, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action. Who paternalistically believes that he set the timetable for another man's freedom. Who lives by a mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. Mm, mic drop. Yeah. <laughs> I think, like, A, the fact that MLK was arrested is important um, because I think that alone is something that's glossed over. Um, and he is absolutely calling out because he's writing to ministers who are telling him th that, like, it's not their time and just wait. 
uh, is was like letters he was receiving from uh, fellow ministers and uh, to kind of respond in this way and to have these letters very publicized, um, I think is is really cool. Um, and I I have read it in its completion. I highly recommend that. There's also a few different like um, readers who read through it if you are more of an audio audio person um but it is really cool to hear or read in its entirety and i highly recommend it that just reminded me i'm sure other people saw this too but it was um i think a tweet on mlk that that just said like oh great day for um people to post like mlk quotes with a lot of ellipses yes Because, yeah, let's just, like, take quotes and just take out the parts that don't suit them. Or just, like, do, like, really short quotes. Yeah. Which, I mean, they do with, like, fucking everything, but. No, for sure. Um, Similarly to how you did the bell hooks reading, I will have some ellipses in this next speech, but it's not to censor. (laughs) It's to kind of cut out the things that we might not need to hear. We're actually censoring the radical opinion in this episode about radical opinions. (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't that I didn't want to read five pages on air. It was that she said some things that I simply can't repeat. Exactly. I know. His speeches are long. His letters are long. There's going to be snippets. So uh, we're not censoring. Just we're trust just... that we're actually cutting out the most radical parts and presenting only those <laughs> takes. Truly. Truly. Just the hottest yeah. takes. This ne- so the what I want to talk about next is about the Vietnam War and um, he had a speech called Beyond Vietnam which I'll get to in a little bit but um it's very, very long, and it was really hard for me to select uh, what part of it to read. Because really, again, similarly to Letters from a Birmingham Jail, it's he's an incredible writer. He's an incredible orator. Um, and yeah, you should just you should just look it up. Anyway, so King was a staunch anti-war activist and spoke firmly against U.S. militarism in the Vietnam War. Um, in an April 1967 speech called Beyond Vietnam, King called the war madness. This was a deeply radical and polarizing opinion in a moment when protests of the war had begun erupting across the country in New York, San Francisco, and Washington, D.C. This was an unpopular opinion for him to have at the time because 64% of Americans approved of the war, according to an October 1965 Gallup poll. They highlighted his increasing distance from mainstream American politics that called for the respectability, quiet assimilation, and good behavior of, like, good in quotes, behavior of black Americans. In fact, polling during the 1960s reflects how polarizing King's radical work truly was for U.S. citizens. In 1965, Gallup found that King had a 45 positive and 45 percent negative rating. And in 1966, the last year he was included in the poll, his positive rating dropped to 32%, while his negative rating increased to 63%. So I wanted to read a little bit, like we were talking about, uh, from his speech Beyond Vietnam to get a better idea about what his thoughts were at that time. He says, There is at the outset a very obvious and almost facile connection between the war in Vietnam and the struggle I and others have been waging in America. A few years ago, there was a shining moment in the struggle. 
It seemed as if there was a real promise of hope for the poor, both black and white, through the poverty program. There were experiments, hopes, new beginnings. Then came the buildup in Vietnam, and I watched this program broken and eviscerated as if it were some idle political plaything of a society gone mad on war. And I knew that America would never invest the necessary funds or energies in rehabilitation of its poor, so long as adventures like Vietnam continued to draw men and skills and money like some demonic, destructive suction tube. So I was increasingly compelled to see the war as an enemy of the poor and attack it as such. And then he goes on to say, Laura's cutting out part where he said season of the bitch is we don't like it. (laughs) True. (laughs) Censoring the slander. (laughs) He said also season of the bitch is it's their fault. And that is what we're taking out. Exactly. Uh, So he writes, or he says, As I have walked among the desperate, rejected, and angry young men, I have told them that Molotov cocktails and rifles would not solve their problems. I have tried to offer them my deepest compassion while maintaining my conviction that social change comes most meaningly through nonviolent action. But they asked me, and rightly so, what about Vietnam? They asked if our own national wasn't using massive doses of violence to solve its problems to bring about the changes it wanted. Their questions hit home, and I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government. He continues on. I am convinced that if we are to get to the right side of the world revolution, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. We must rapidly begin the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. When machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism, and militarism are incapable of being conquered. We still have a choice today, nonviolent coexistence or violent co-annihilation. We must move past indecision to action. We must find new ways to speak for peace in Vietnam and justice throughout the developing world, a world that borders on our doors. If we do not act, we shall surely be dragged down the long, dark, and shameful corridors of time reserved for those who possess power without compassion, might without morality, and strength without sight. Yeah, so um, when I was talking to my dad recently about this, as I mentioned, like one of the things we were talking about was MLK's involvement in like anti-war movement. And um, one of the things I think is really important to understand about this is that MLK was a big voice behind trying to bridge the civil rights movement with the anti-war movement. Um, And especially at the time, a lot of the anti-war movement had a lot more like young white people and Asian American people. um, And like a lot of um, it was happening on like college campuses because young people were being drafted um, than in the civil rights movement. And so like bridging these together was this like much greater vision of solidarity um, than what had been previously happening. And so that's part of why it was like increasingly polarizing, as Laura mentioned, and like a great threat to um, the ruling class, because this idea of like bridging together these 
to like major movements at the time. And as we talked on other episodes, there was like um, a lot of like feminist organizing happening at the time. So the idea of like bringing these things together that MLK and like other civil rights leaders had was becoming like increasingly more of a threat to the ruling class. And I think that's a really good segue to talk about his assassination. Yes, definitely. Um, I Yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about King's assassination and the events surrounding his death. Um, I think most of us are familiar with sort of the broad strokes um, that he was on a trip to support striking workers when he was murdered, um, which is a cause that exemplified the more radical politics that he had embraced by the end of his life. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about just what the strike was, like what was going on. Um, in February of 1968, Memphis sanitation workers went on strike to protest the city's neglect and abuse of its Black employees. The kind of immediate catalyst for the strike was this really tragic incident in which a garbage truck malfunctioned and it killed two young men, Ethel Cole and Robert Walker. And the sanitation department offered the men's families an insultingly low amount of money as compensation, something like $600 to $700, which was a month's pay plus $500 for funeral expenses. And this was a really important cause in Memphis. Black residents raised $100,000 for Cole and Walker's families to make up for the city's inadequate offer. And then- This is like Frodo GoFundMe. Yeah, exactly. Like- (laughs) It is, it's interesting how people have literally always had to crowdfund because capitalism does not pay for human lives. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so this had all happened and people were, you know, very raw from this. And then the sanitation department added insult to injury by telling workers that they would be getting a raise of five cents. So on February 12th, the workers decided to go on strike um, and they had some negotiations with the city. But after the mayor refused to sign a deal recognizing their union and raising pay, the strike continued on into March. So King visited for an action on March 18th and the strike continued after that. So he returned to Memphis at the beginning of April with plans to help lead another march and rally. Around 6 p.m. on April 4th, 1968, King was standing on a balcony outside his hotel room when he was shot and killed. And we talked about this a little bit before, but the public response was immediate. There were uprisings in dozens of cities across the country. And on April 8th, which was the Monday following King's death, his wife, Coretta Scott King, and thousands of others marched to commemorate his death and support sanitation workers who were still striking. I think this is something about King's death that can be glossed over at times, like even in his death, his name and status were still being used to support working class struggle, which I think is fair to say is probably exactly what he would have wanted. Um, In a speech that, interestingly enough, was given exactly two months before he died, King had actually spoken about how he would want to be remembered after death. So I wanted to read a little bit from that speech because I think it's interesting to just think about what he sort of wanted the response to his death to be. Um, He said, quote, every now and then, I guess we all think realistically about that day when we will be victimized with what is life's final common denominator. That's something that we call death. And every now and then I ask myself, what is it that I would want said? And I leave the word to you this morning. If any of you are around when I have to meet my day, 
I don't want a long funeral. And if you get somebody to deliver the eulogy, tell them not to talk too long. Tell them not to mention that I have a Nobel Peace Prize. That isn't important. I love how he's like humble brag. (laughs) Don't mention it. I know. It's definitely a humble brag. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Tell them not to mention where I went to school. I'd like somebody to mention that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving others. I'd like for somebody to say that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love somebody. I want you to say that day that I tried to be right on the war question. I want you to be able to say that day that I did try to feed the hungry. And I want you to be able to say that day that I did try in my life to clothe those who were naked. I want you to say on that day that I did try in my life to visit those who were in prison. I want you to say that I tried to love and serve humanity, unquote. Um, I think even though, yeah, I, I just wanted to read that because it's, it's powerful to hear and I think it's also just you know he was a really great speaker and part of his power as an activist was that he was able to inspire you know these feelings of like wanting to make the world a better place and people um and I think you know that's that's part of why the way that his death was commemorated by his wife and family and other activists is much more in line with what he probably would have wanted um but even though his death was commemorated in this way, like a way that sort of aligned more with his values and radical legacy, also almost immediately the kind of more moderate co-opting of his image started basically right away. Um, President Lyndon B. Johnson declared a national day of mourning on the Sunday after King's death, um, which similar to the holiday eventually being created, was seen by a lot of people as a way to try to redirect energy from people in the streets protesting to something more, uh, I don't know, less disruptive, I guess. Um, And also law enforcement began a botched investigation into King's death. So a man named James Earl Ray was arrested for the crime almost immediately, and he pleaded guilty partly to avoid the death penalty. Um, He was convicted of the murder, but then afterwards he recanted his guilty plea, saying that his lawyer had pressured him into it, and his lawyer did have a financial deal with a writer to share information about the case for a book, which definitely seems unethical. Oh my god. But yeah, it's just like the whole thing was quite a mess in many ways. Um, But, you know, for that was sort of all that happened. He just said that he didn't do it um, and he didn't really explain further. It wasn't until a quarter of a decade later in the 90s when a man named Lloyd Jowers came forward claiming that he had involved Ray in a conspiracy to kill King after a friend in the mafia paid him $100,000 to have King murdered. Um, And Jowers had rented Ray like the boarding house room where he was staying when King was shot. So at one point, Jowers claimed that a member of the Memphis Police Department and not Ray had been the one who actually shot King and that Memphis police and or the FBI had chosen Ray as a scapegoat to blame for the shooting just because he happened to be staying at the same motel and had a criminal record. So King's family sued Jowers in civil court in the 90s, and they won a verdict against him, um, which basically affirms that there was solid evidence that Jowers had covered up important information in the case, but it wasn't conclusive in terms of like what was the actual police involvement in this. Um, But then in 1998, a former FBI agent also came forward and said that he had hidden relevant evidence in the case that supported some elements of Ray's 
new story about his innocence. And some of those documents were later handed over to the FBI. Um, but ultimately, the FBI concluded that Jower's story was false and basically that there was no need to investigate further. Well, of course which they is like, fucking did. Right. Like, they couldn't it's be like, like the call was coming from inside the house. They're investigating themselves. It's yeah. like, that yeah, it's like, that, this, that, that sign can't be for me. Like, oh, I was thinking of the Spider-Man meme where it's just like Spider-Man <laughs> yeah. pointing at Spider-Man. Yes, exactly. That too, yes. Um, you know, obviously they have a huge motive in being like, this is fine because an FBI agent literally admitted to interfering with the case. Um, so both Jowers and Ray have changed their stories multiple times, and no one besides Ray has ever been found guilty of a crime related to King's death. But, you know, it's not really unbelievable that the FBI would be involved in some way. You know, they definitely did try to destroy his life and at one point tried to convince him to commit suicide. So it's like... Not to mention, like, they killed Fred Hampton and... Right. And they have... They definitely did kill radical leaders. So it's like, it's not... It's definitely not out of the question. I think mostly there's just, like, still a lot of unanswered questions about who else was involved and, like, most of them probably will never be answered, and some of them may be answered in 2027 when some of the FBI's files related to all of this are scheduled to be declassified. But um, stay yeah, fucking just, tuned. That's right. a big day for me and um, the conspiracy <laughs> theory community. Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> the MLK's death conspiracy theory community, which, by the way, you know, his, his own family is like, there's obviously something shady going on. Yeah, I don't really um, think it's a. Like no. I, think it's a I think it's just theory. the conspiracy. It's like true that yeah. something yeah. weird is going on here. Yes. Um, but yeah, you know, if you want to help, but I think keep... that about all of the conspiracy <laughs> theories that I believe in. Anyway, we digress. <laughs> well, you know, I feel like you would agree that the FBI would have been involved in uh, the, uh, the fake moon landing too. I I do. <laughs> Was, I don't know when those was, documents are scheduled to be declassified. We I feel have like to look into that. That was only released on the episode that wasn't released. Oh, uh, so people don't right. know that you didn't I think, like think we've the moon talked landing. about it since. Then. Yeah, <laughs> we just have to re-record up. that because I think I lost <laughs> that recording, but I'm down. Uh, yeah, stay stay tuned for more um, of our conspiracy theories. Um, <laughs> if you would like to support that and help, because that will only be on Patreon. Going, yes, and here, yes, here, all of you our have to pay us to hear me potentially take my own career. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Feed. <laughs> um, you can support us at patreon.com slash season of the bitch and if you go there you can also join our discord we have a reading group movie nights different events and such um you can also follow us on twitter and instagram at season of the bee visit our website if you feel like it season of the bee.com and rate review subscribe all of the actions on whatever app you are using to listen to us and please rate us well frick yeah Thank you. <laughs> we deserve it baby all right love bye y'all love you, love you. Bye. bye Bye. Season of the Bitch. Oh.